millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Okay, welcome everyone to a special episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Uh, today, Xander and I are bringing back the drunk episode format. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quarantine time, baby, right? And I was on a uh, Zoom call with some of my friends the other night, and someone suggested that we do like the equivalent of a drunk history, but like a drunkenomics or something like that. So Eric and I kind of brainstormed. We're like, okay, what's a relevant topic? And we're, gonna, we're still going to try to do a little bit of drunken, drunkenomics at the end. This may be a longer than average episode, but we might be a little short on the economics bit but we'll be long on the beer. Yes, exactly. And uh, the drunkenomics part is, is going to be talking about something that neither of us really understand, which is exciting. And normally we, normally we talk about stuff where we at least have some idea of what we're talking about. And today we kind of have no idea what we're talking about, which is, pretty, which is pretty cool. But actually, Xander, do you want to start with, do you want to start talking about our modern monetary theory problem? Yeah, let's start. Let, let's we'll do a little intro and then we'll do that tie in at the end that um, we just chatted uh, off air on. Sure. So modern monetary theory is becoming a it's 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 this idea that's now left the academic world and it is becoming increasingly a political topic. And the question then is, what is modern monetary theory? And I I've spent some time trying to look into it and I'm, I'm struggling with what exactly it means. And I'll, I'll try to explain it best as I currently understand it. And then Eric and I will chat a minute on it. And if, if y'all know like something that I'm missing here, please shoot me an email at Xander at reconsidermedia.com because hopefully I can explain why I still feel a little confused. But there are several tenets to modern monetary theory or MMT. And so we can't hit all of them. But one of the basic ones is the idea that the government's budget, so there's this income and expense part of a budget, that is, you can fund that in different ways. The notion that you need taxes to fund income is actually restricting the government from spending more money right now that may actually be beneficial to the economy in the long run. And MMT argues that this money or can essentially come from directly the central banks. So uh, it's it's like printing money, but printing money is not actually what happens, right? There are lots of different mechanisms to increase the amount of money in an economy. And in this case, rather than using like bond buying 
or fiddling with interest rates like the Federal Reserve usually does. The Federal Reserve would just directly provide funds to the government. It would just create those units of account in a computer somewhere so that the government can spend that money directly. I think what I was scratching my head about this. Okay, what makes this special? Because the Fed already prints money. And I think one of the things one of the things we need to do, Xander, is let people know that, you know, MMT aside, what is the Fed doing when it prints money? Right? Right. Because it's because I think a lot of people I've I've had to explain this to people, and I'm probably not as good at it as you, but I've had to explain to people frequently. You know, people even ask me, like, well, why do we even have taxes? So, so now MMT economists are asking this, but why do we even have taxes? The Fed can just print money. Why don't we just, why doesn't, why don't they just print money and, and use that to fund the government if they're going to print money? Um, why, why take my paycheck at all? And so the first, the, I think the first thing to, for us to talk about is MMT aside, you know, when the Federal Reserve prints money or when someone who controls a fiat currency prints money, What's happening to that, those, those literal paper dollar bills or electronic equivalents of those? So there's a couple of ideas to talk about right there, right? One is how exactly the Fed prints money, what those mechanisms are, what those facilities are, and two, what the purpose of income taxes are and why, like what their function is. Is it to fund federal government expenditures or is there another purpose for it? So first, money supply. There are several ways that the Fed can quote unquote print money and printing money doesn't actually happen, right? There's not a money press just creating dollar bills that go out and then they come back and get shredded. I mean, you can actually pay taxes in dollars and have them shredded. That's actually a thing. But at least I think that's a thing. No tax advice. <laughs> Remember, this is, a, this is a beer episode. I'm drinking a Sam Smith's Taddy Porter right now. Anyways, the Federal Reserve can decrease interest rates and with lower interest rates, banks have a wider spread on their margin, which just means like if they loan X percent to uh, a consumer who um, is buying a house, getting a mortgage, they might charge 4% and they may borrow those funds from the funds from the Federal Reserve at like a quarter of a percent or half percent in like current figures. And so that will increase their profit and they could extend more loans, right? It encourages them to extend more loans. So that's one way. The other is is what's called open market operations, and this is what this is this is like the broad, broad broader category of if you hear buying bonds or selling bonds by the Federal Reserve. So the government will the U.S. government will issue bonds in order to cover the difference between its income and its expenditures. So if it's pulling in, it's like what three billion and change. And spending, sorry, three trillion and change and spending right. four trillion and change, then it needs to borrow a trillion and change in debt. And most of this debt is issued domestically. It, it does not go to foreign holders like other countries. We've done another episode on this at some point. And the Federal Reserve can enter into the market and buy a lot of bonds off the market. And when it does that, it's it's increasing the amount it's increasing the demand that exists for uh for for government bonds for those bonds yeah because yeah. it's a big buyer um so that increases so it drives the interest rate up right it drives the price of the bond up but oh, right. yeah, but yeah, that yeah. actually there's an inverse relation between the bond price and the interest rate right because if 
if something is paying three dollars a year right, and it costs you hundred dollars right, right, yeah. and you buy that that stream of income for 105, it's actually you're not getting three percent anymore. So when the when the Federal Reserve buys bonds, it it generally has it can decrease interest rates because it's driving the price of bonds up. And vice versa when it sells bonds. And that's one way that the Federal Reserve can manipulate longer term interest rates by changing the demand in the market uh, by buying and selling bonds. And then the Federal Reserve can either choose to let some of those bonds expire and roll over or expire or roll over. If it rolls over, then the Federal Reserve like purchases new government debt as the old debt expires, but it can choose to do those at different rates. And so if there's more money expiring or more debt expiring than it is issuing new ones, then you're effectively taking money supply out of the economy. Mm. I, think, I think that's how the mechanism works. It's been a while since I've actually studied the details of that. So I'm pretty sure. But Okay, but key, key point here is yeah. that the Federal Reserve prints money and either uses it to buy bonds or issue, issue loans you know, at, a, at a certain interest rate that people, you know, that banks use to, you know, finance mortgages and stuff like that. And so it doesn't just print money and, and let the government spend it. The federal, the, the budget or the, the treasury does not have access to the federal reserve. Can't just go, Hey fed, you know, Hey, Alan Greenspan, who's the federal reservist. Everyone knows Alan, can you just, can you just send a couple trillion this way? Because if it did, then it wouldn't need taxes, right? Why would you possibly collect taxes or at least, you know, issue bonds and, and have to pay debt if you could just print all the money you wanted and spend it. And I think, I think Xander, that MMT is suggesting just that, that you can just print money off the, off the printer and the treasury can take that money and spend it. That's as I understand it. I think maybe one caveat that proponents of the theory would would kind of poke at you a little bit on that would just be you can't print as much money as you want. There is some sort of limit, but we can print a lot more than we're printing right now. And in addition to creating more money, that money can be created through a different mechanism. So instead of you know buying or selling long-term bonds and letting some expire or creating new money to purchase those bonds and manipulating interest rates that way, which provides funding to the U.S. government, the Federal Reserve would would print money by changing the actual like figures and accounts and provide that that money directly to the U.S. government to spend. So the thing I've come across is like a direct mechanism, and I, I might be that I might be paraphrasing or misquoting it exactly, but there is this notion that that funds are going more directly to fund government spending without those roundabout mechanisms. Right. So and and. And when we were talking about this beforehand, Xander was saying, I don't see what is so radically different about MMT, because if you think about it, you know, you think of that dollar that the Federal Reserve printed, it buys a bond with with printed money that the government issued to fund itself. Right. So it's just this multi-step process. Right. So the government wants to spend a dollar, it issues a bond, and then the Federal Reserve has to buy that for, you know either a dollar or, or some amount around there, but that, that you still in, in two steps rather than one, getting the Federal Reserve to put money into the federal government's coffers and therefore 
you know, and, and therefore, so what really is so radical about sending that dollar directly from the Federal Reserve to the Treasury? Is that right? I, th- I believe that's right. And, and the reason that you're using the word radical, right, is because oftentimes in articles describing MMT, it will present itself as a radical departure from traditional economics by, and that's basically why, because the MMT theorists would say you can actually fund the government directly rather than through these roundabout ways. And we can provide a lot more dollars right now to fund government expenditures in a time of uh, depressed demand. Right. What I'm seeing, so I'm, I'm at the, uh, you know, the ever, oh, I'm at Wikipedia and it, I mean, Wikipedia is awesome. Um, and it looks like a number of economists mess with this. There's a comparison here of MMT with mainstream Keynesian economics. And on the topic of federal funding government spending, Keynesianism says, you know, use taxation and issuing bonds to fund government spending. MMT says, that taxation and debt issuance are not required to fund spending, so that they're they're now optional in MMT. Right? You just you know you don't want to don't want to tax people. Okay, don't tax people. And then what's the purpose of taxation in Keynesianism? It's to fund government spending and then also to address inequality in MMT. The primary purpose of taxation is to drive demand for the currency. Secondary use includes addressing inflation, addressing income inequality, and discouraging certain bad behavior. So I think. I think part of the difference in, in MMT here seems to be that the primary funding of government spending is the Federal Reserve. It's a little like actually what I just thought of as a as an analogy. Let's say you lived in a gold rich, you know, you're you're an ancient government in antiquity, small one, and you live just, you know, your tiny little state is next to a bunch of giant gold mines, right? And you have these gold mines and you mine for gold and you just use that to fund the government. You don't have to tax anyone anything. You just just using the gold. Is is that kind of the same thing as MMT here? Uh, I that I don't. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know. Right. Because I feel like part of the reason that in MMT the government needs to create that demand for dollars. And, and the idea there is because everyone has to pay pr- um, income taxes every year, they need to hold some amount of dollars and that creates the demand for the dollar in the fiat currency system. So maybe that's something that's really different about it is you're changing sort of how that currency that's not currently backed by a commodity like gold is generated in the economy. And the reason I'm really careful about answering that question, Eric, is because it seems like there there are a lot of comparisons to gold standards being being thrown around in within the realm of discussion of MMT, and I haven't really looked into it that much, so I don't I don't know. Right. But maybe the idea of, of property taxes having this different function instead of funding the government, the government is funded from the Federal Reserve, and pro- and income. I keep saying property taxes. Income taxes are are still paid by everyone and the need to pay those income taxes is what creates it's what makes the dollar valuable it's the demand of that dollar by the government i think right. i think that's what one of the central tenets of mmt right yeah and and for what it's worth there's a lot of criticism especially from the chicago school where i tend to find my economic friends uh, saying that it's it's quote absurd 
And it says countries that borrow in their own currency should not worry about government deficits because they can always create money to finance their debt. And the countries that borrow in their currency can finance as much real government spending as they want by creating money. And so, you know, there, I, I, I think the Chicago school, and this was based on a survey of the University of Chicago Booth's Initiative on Global Markets, is, is basically having the same trouble with this as I am, which is, well, why, why can't you just literally print an infinite amount of money? You know, just more and more and more money. Like, what is, what is the, what's the, the cap on this? And is it just inflation? Or is it just, you know, is it devaluing the currency? Because it, it feels like this is a great way to create, you know, to create hyperinflation if you're not careful. Right. And I, I think I've read some of the MMT's response to that, the idea of hyperinflation. But I just want to say this is why I'm a little confused about why it's necessarily radical, because there's always been a conversation about whether the central bank can or should in a country uh, be controlled by the government and be able to finance certain types of expenses. And oftentimes, when you look at countries where the supply of money or the central bank is controlled by politicians, you often end up seeing higher rates of inflation. By higher rates, I don't mean like 5 or 6% compared to like the three or so that it is right now in the US. I mean like 50, 60, 70. So actual hyperinflation. And the reason is this is is because there's always incentive for politicians to spend more money, so they'll always create more money and in order to fund their projects. But after a while, there will be so much money in the economy that there will be an incredible demand. There there will be more demand for goods and services than goods and services exist, and the, the value of those goods and services will therefore start going up so quickly that a lot of people can't afford them. And sort of the other theory with hyper or the what causes hyperinflation is the idea of currency as a unit account. So there's no, there's a finite amount of resources in an economy. Right. So if you yes. double your money supply, then so what? It still represents the same intrinsic value. Exactly. Yeah. That's the that's the primary discomfort I have. And this is this is a hardcore. You know, I I read a lot of Hayek over the past ten years. Actually, probably all of it. And. You know, critic. You know, people can probably criticize me for being a little too focused here. But he's, you know, smart guy, Nobel Prize winner, all that good stuff. And and essentially that the you know essentially the problem is that you have a certain amount of labor and a certain amount of materials, and barring any innovation or improvements in management theory or improvements in operations or improvements in technology, etc., th- there's a certain amount of value that you can get out of that. So, for example, let's say you know, and, and kind of maybe bringing this back to COVID, right? Like what if the plague gets so bad that like farmers start getting very sick, right? Or, or, or farmers are starting to get wiped out, right? We lose like 10% of our farmers and, and they're just gone, right? And nobody's tending those fields and they lay fallow. Well, what amount of government monetary voodoo can, can get food to people? Well, none, right? None. And people are going to starve and they'll be like, great, I've got, you know, and, and now you start thinking th- through a series of steps that I'm too drunk to explain. Now I'm, <laughs> now I'm imagining like this like 1930s Germany style, like sickly, skinny child with a wheelbarrow f- full of money trying to buy a loaf of bread. And, you know, and someone's like, ah, your wheelbarrow full of money is no good. Sorry. And, uh, you know, he's like, oh, I got to bring a second wheelbarrow. I'll be back in an hour kind of thing. And like, there are a real amount of resources and just printing money and pretending that we now have more stuff feels dangerous. So I, 
I want to now present what I think is the MMT theorist response to that exact argument, which is mm. we're not saying print an infinite amount of money. We're saying there is currently not enough money to provide for the purchases uh, that could be going on in an economy. So there is some limit and that limit is essentially full employment. And then you can have a whole conversation about what full employment right. employment is. But the MMTs argue, even if there's any unemployment in an economy, the government could be spending more and creating more demand that currently doesn't exist. And once you get to full utilization of the economy, which is full, full unemployment, that's when you would need to start decreasing money supply. But right, which is they argue, what taxes are for. Exactly. Yeah. And they would argue that taxes are not to fund government expenditures, but are, are, are used to take money out of the economy. And that's what the real purpose of taxes are for. Now, the, the reason this is all just a little perplexing to me is, I guess you can talk about different mechanisms, and that's a very wonky thing. And I feel like most of what we've just said is very wonky. So there, there are details about how exactly money is distributed. Fine. But this doesn't seem like a radical departure to me from the conversations that are generally had about how involved government should be in managing the central bank. And there's a lot of studies that show that when politicians, elected politicians, control the money supply more than independent and uh, appointed like uh, technocrats do, then you generally see higher rates of inflation. And I, I want to be careful about like jumping to the Weimar Republic as an analogy here, just because Germany in 1918 is so different in so many ways from the US. And yes, printing money was part of that, but part of it was printing money in order to get out from uh, a war debt that they couldn't afford to, you know. That's fair. And they, they, their, their productive base had been completely destroyed and they were trying to get back to work, but they couldn't um, provide funding for everything and pay all the debt. And Germany was only 40 years old at the time still, or 50 years old. And I think that, anyways, I, I, I like to be careful about my Weimar Germany analogies, but... It's, it's, it's almost like calling everyone you don't like a Nazi. Yeah. It's just, it's and and like, it's just, it's the obvious case, right? That in Zimbabwe. Yeah. And so I think that's what the MMT theorists well, would say in response. Now. What? And Venezuela. And Venezuela. That's true. Yeah. Um, but I want to, I want to come back to this at the end of the show, because I think ultimately while some of the mechanisms of distributing money seem a little bit different to me in MMT, and this is where I'm asking listeners to write in and tell me if I'm wrong here. The the question the the theory is not a radical departure from what's currently existed, but a question of degree, and you know that's kind of what we're all about here. Like, there's no black or white. There are different shades of gray, and how much money should be printed? What's an appropriate right. amount of money? And I'm gonna pause because part of our discussion in the show will actually bring us back around to this at the very end of the episode. But the question of how much to spend is what I want to tease you with. And now we're going to hop into something completely different for a while. Well, it's, it's related because uh, the reason people are talking about MMT is because we're in, you know, we're in an unprecedented event in you know, post-World War II, a.k.a. modern economics, which is you know, we have a plague that is causing the economy to stop or a large part of the economy to stop. And that's what's so interesting about this and, and terrible about it. And my God, I, I, the last three weeks 
or so of our management meetings and our investor meetings at my software company have all been about what the heck can the economy possibly be doing next? If I was the Fed, I'd be I'd just be I'd be saying, like, look, I just need to take a vacation until this is done and then come back and think about it, because normally, again, a a lot of a lot of Hayek, you know, a lot of Hayek in this. But normally, you know, you have this economic event where you you have this like collapsing asset values or something or something and, and unemployment shoots up and then you go, great. okay well, now we have all these resources available. And guess what normally happens when there's an excess supply of something? The price drops and then people can gobble it up and great. And right now we have all these unemployed people and and we're like literally we're basically not allowed to use them. We being the economy as a whole, the economy is basically not allowed to use all these unemployed folks. And, you know, and so that's that is in a lot of ways fundamentally different. And and, you know, and, and the, the more Hayek style and the more Keynes style people would argue at a normal recession over. You know, with all these unemployed folks, do you just do you just kind of let the economy try to slip them back up again in the most efficient way? Or do you try to have the government hire them or do you try to fund people with lower interest rates to be able to slip them up or what? But we're in this fundamentally different place and we have a plague. And so we can transition to something completely different uh, by talking about, well, what the heck happened in past plagues? What happened to societies? What happened to economies? None of them had these uh, economists getting to argue. Last thing I just want to say about MMT, Paul Krugman calls it Calvin Ball. Do you know what Calvin Ball is? No idea. Uh, Sander? Okay. You know Calvin and Hobbes. Sure do. So in Calvin Ball, Calvin makes up the rules as he goes. Like he just makes up the rules for whatever he's doing when he has the ball so that he wins. And so that's what Krugman says about MMT. I just read that and I just want to share that. I don't know if Krugman's Krugman's right. There's a lot I, I disagree with Krugman about and he's a much smarter person than I am. So who knows? But, you know, plagues have happened before and, and what happened in these societies, you know, whether, you know, it, it, and, and what, what happened in these societies, regardless of their economies as well, I think is all relevant for us to think about. So what are some of the long term consequences of COVID-19 going to be on the economy on on politics, global politics, and just on our societies. What's going to happen? Can we learn from looking at prior examples? And I think this show is inspired by several things. One, uh, my girlfriend and I had a conversation about prior plagues and social unrest, and you know if there's a direct correlation there. And I kind of went, hmm, I don't really know to be completely honest. And I I try to think back, and I can think of like maybe three examples of prior pandemics, right? One was the Black Plague. The other was Spanish influenza, 1918, 1919. Justinian Plague, I knew about that one. And like the H1N1 thing from 2009, which I lived through. And You didn't think of the Plague of Athens? You, you absolute heathen. Yeah, honestly, I knew about it, but it, was, it didn't pop into my head immediately, um, which probably means that I need to read more Thucydides. You pleb. <laughs> this is why you turn tune into the drunk episodes of Reconsider. <laughs> Eric calls me a pleb for under-reading Thucydides. You're welcome. <laughs> and I kind of went, well, that's that's not a great sample size. I, I don't know. I, there's that's And they're all such unique cases, right? Spanish influenza happened at the end of World War I and spread during the war. And a lot of scientists right. think that maybe that's why it was particularly virulent. 
because it didn't need to adapt quickly when it first spread because it could kill its host quickly and still get to the next guy in the trenches. And then it spread all over the world when everyone went home at the end of 1918. And the worst part of the year-long epidemic occurred after the war ended. So that was, that was a very unique case. And it might have been the most deadly in terms of absolute numbers pandemic in, in history, at least within like a short contained time, but certainly not in terms of percentage. And right. the Black Death is such an unusual example, too, because it was so, so, so deadly. It was it really was a plague. It's why it's called plague, right? Like in some places, 50 percent of a population would be killed and a third of Europe died. And it had major ramifications for the development of Europe and the rest of the 14th and 15th century. And lots of scholars, oh, Barbara and, Tuckerman included, oh. would argue that it contributed to the birth of the modern world and the Renaissance and yeah. the rights of man. And it completely yes. rewrote the social contract between landlords yes. and serfs. I, I, yeah, I, I can't help but agree. Uh, this book, by the way, which I read like five years ago now, and all of my friends who saw me reading it thought, what an obscure book. Why would you ever read that? It's called A Distant Mirror, The Calamitous 14th Century. So, you know, it's about the Hundred Years' War between England and France and uh, the Black Death and all that. And now all Who's of- laughing now? What's that? Who's laughing now? Yeah, now sales of the book have skyrocketed as people want to know what the social repercussions of the plague were. Interesting, huh? Boom. Xander got it when it was cheap. Eat that. <laughs> <laughs> Highly recommend the book. <laughs> Tuckman is great. Uh, but, yeah, I guess that came in handy. But she goes on and on about the social ramifications of the plague. But the plague was way, 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 way deadlier than COVID-19, right? And even Spanish influenza was likely a lot more deadly than COVID-19 and certainly killed a different set of the demographic. So, Well, and, and we know that Spanish influenza, I know it's a misnomer, deal with it, but Spanish influenza has a higher, had a higher death rate as well, a, you know, estimated death rate. Well, we don't know because we don't know a lot of the data about COVID-19 still, right? Like. See, death rates like can range depending on what you're looking at between like one and three and a half percent, depending on how far spread the disease is. And if it's if it's three and a half percent, which I don't think it is, but I don't know, then it, it is more deadly on a case basis than the Spanish flu, which is about two to three percent. But also uh, statistics were worse back then. So it's hard to know. Right. All right. I'm wrong. It's it's just really hard to know these things. And unfortunately, there's a lot of uncertainty in this. Right. But well, you mentioned H1N1 as well as the other one you know about. And H1N1 and like Ebola 2018 or 2017 or something are interesting because, because everyone said, oh, crap. Oh, crap. This is a big deal. Let's hop on it. Let's make sure it doesn't blow up. And it worked. Right. And that's part of what makes them notable is that, you know, and, and I've got this whole thing about nobody appreciates the bad things that didn't happen. It's like nobody looks back on you know, George Herbert Walker Bush and and making sure that the collapse of the Soviet Union didn't lead to a, you know, 10 year long nuclear war. And and nobody looks back on H1N1 and Ebola and swine flu, bird flu, all that stuff and goes like, holy crap, we did a great job getting a lid on that. Um, these people are heroes. And, and in a lot of ways they were because for some, you know, for some of these diseases, the the infect infectiveness infection is oh boy i'm drunk that are not was higher and for some of them the death rate was higher and for some of them both was higher than coronavirus and part of the problem with coronavirus is that we failed to get a lid on it right there was a chance there was an opportunity we lost it 
Now it's everywhere. Ah, right. And so now we're talking about a different kind of epidemic than we were talking about with H1N1 or Ebola, even though Ebola is way more deadly and H1N1 is more virulent. Right. So where I'm kind of going with all of this is in this really long preamble to what we're going to talk about is I realized in that conversation that I didn't have a very good sample set. I didn't know enough examples to really have any idea uh, what sort of social consequences it was going to be. So it, it became rabbit hole time, uh, quarantine time. And uh, we both dug into some details on historical plagues. And this is by no means a complete study. But there are a lot of really good show notes on this one. Um, it was a very deep rabbit hole. And there's a lot of unusual sources. And not that unusual, but like the San Francisco Fed, for example, right? Not, not CNN. De- academic things that if you want to read, there's a lot more detail there. So that's what we're doing this show. We're talking about plagues there and their consequences. Should we get into it? What else can we do? Let's go. All right. So COVID-19, what are we seeing already as potential social and economic consequences and political consequences? We'll share those and compare the past. So, you know, just be ready for historical analogies when we get to the historical stuff. So right now, with COVID-19, um, delivering grocery workers are demanding greater pay. So we're, we're seeing a number of uh, some, some more like labor uh, organization than we've seen, you know, in the past 20 years, maybe, um, with some of these groups that, you know, hey, look, you're getting paid minimum wage and you're literally putting your life on the line to make sure people get fed, which, you know, I, I had my like tear filled moment about that. But it's like, well, maybe they should get paid more is what they're thinking. And so there's a little more labor organization going on um, at Amazon where they actually hired people and added people because, you know, rich white idiots like me are ordering more things rather than shopping for them. So Amazon's busier, Um, probably not just rich white idiots, but people are ordering more things. Amazon now has more people in their warehouses. It's higher risk than it was. Um, So there are there are protests actually happening um, and they're starting to organize. Uh, and demand better conditions, better pay for what they're doing. So this could be the beginnings of a bit of a labor movement, uh, which is, you know, it would be an interesting, in, in, interesting socioeconomic consequence of this. So there may also be, you know, for the United States, there may be political consequences as well. All the Bernie fans out there, and I'm, I'm not taking any sides here, but all the Bernie fans out there who have like, you know, gouged their eyeballs out or otherwise, uh, you know, or, or otherwise like scoured themselves with boiling water to deal with the agony of him not being in the race. You know, a lot of what, you know, a lot of policies that that Sand or, 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 you know, in the general direction of a lot of the, the policies that Sanders advocated for that were branded as socialism. And a lot of Americans like, ooh, socialism bad. Don't want that. Right. You know, might have an opportunity again, speculating here, might have an opportunity to maybe rebrand. Right. So what if a bunch of stories come out of, ah, yes, like, you know, Karen, I'm just, you know, nobody likes Karen. Karen got people sick because Karen didn't have health insurance and she got COVID-19 and she had to work. Right. Karen had to work so that she could eat and she was an essential worker and she had COVID-19 and she couldn't go to the doctor and all this terrible stuff. And 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 Karen got four thousand people sick and twenty eight of them died and all this stuff. And how is that going to influence the narrative in the next four years, you know, whoever's president of what should our healthcare system look like? Should the healthcare system think a little bit more about 
public health, you know, about each individual's health as a as, as a as a as a vector, right, as a contributor to everyone else's health. Maybe just being healthy yourself isn't enough. And so maybe you should pay for other people's health. And what about, you know, having a social safety net to let people stay home when they're sick so that they don't get everyone else sick? And so these kinds of, you know, these kinds of potential or the, these kinds of problems that we're seeing in, in the United States and elsewhere. But but, you know, just I live here, you know, could change the narrative around the social safety net, could change the narrative around some sort of more universe closer to or completely universal healthcare system from being something that's part of a social socialist ideal to something that becomes a public good. Right. And that kind of makes sense because if you're performing a service that's really necessary and in demand right now, that generally pays low wages, you're in a stronger negotiating position right now and you can demand more wages and so on and so forth. Right. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to look, I'm not going to work as a as a frontline clerk right now. Like those of you who are doing it, good on you. Make it happen. Yeah, understanding that often for folks it's a place of necessity and not so much choice, right? And that's I think that's part of where like both the appreciation and the demand for more for more protection and wages come from. And I guess I'm going to kind of go out of order here, but I'm going to dig into some of the plague examples. We kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier already, but uh, really one of the one of the big ones was the Black Death, 1348-1349. And to kind of understand where we were in the world at that time, you kind of have to get your head out of the place where nation states exist because they really didn't. That was that was like an invention that came later. All this entire society was built upon personal ties of loyalty and obligation. And in some countries that extended to the king, in some countries it was more divided and the most powerful person would be like a duke or something like that. And all of these families would acquire land and try to control more territory, but it was very personal. And they would have to work with each other as well and manage their uh, external relations. And that's kind of the, the version of, internal, of international affairs that existed then, but it wasn't really international because there were no nations. At this time, the labor system was based entirely around serfs, and serfs were tied to the land. They were, I'm not going to say glorified slaves. They were definitely, it was a form of servitude. But the reason I'm so specific on that is because there are a lot, actually a lot of differences between serfs and slaves in the Roman Empire, and serfs came after the Roman Empire. And part of that was serfs were allowed to like take a Sunday off and go to church because Society was a lot more based around Christianity at that time than in, in earlier times. And they had a right to be on the land so long as they performed the service. And that was actually generally something that was respected. And similarly, knights had an obligation to go serve their, their lord, their landlord, in wars or whatever in exchange for um, basically their wages. They were, they were men who fought in exchange for oaths of loyalty, right? And when the Black Plague came in, 30% of Europe was killed in the course of a year. And all of a sudden, while before the constraining element economically had often been land, which meant that there were always enough people around to work the lands and serfs were cheap and often mistreated because there was always someone else who wanted it. Afterwards, there weren't enough people left to till all the land. And all of a sudden, all the aristocrats who had also died, you know, probably in similar numbers because it affected all, all classes as all plagues do, 
couldn't generate the income needed to maintain their properties. So you started seeing landlords begin to hire something that more resembles modern day free wages. And I think I'm trying to be very vague here because it wasn't exactly that, but the, the tie of loyalty to the land and to the Lord that it existed started to break down as a result of the plague. And so you had labor shortages, peasants began demanding greater rights, and you started seeing things like peasant rebellions and responses from the aristocracy forcing, like in England, for example, there, was, there were these laws passed after the plague that forced all working age adults up to the age of 60 to work at their 1346 wages. So employers were prohibited from paying them more, which employers were doing because they had a shortage of labor and were willing to start competing for that labor. Another thing that drove this was it wasn't just that there was a shortage of labor. It's that among peasants, you know, if it generally speaking, it's like there's clergy, there's lords, there's knights, there's peasants. But among the people who were not in those top three groups, some of them were all some of them owned property, right? They had their own farms, God forbid, or they were merchants or something like that. And so what happened is as as these people died, um, some of that property would get would get kind of passed along to other folks. And it wasn't just linear. There were fewer people to absorb that property, which meant that there was consolidation, which meant that you started having these freeholders who would own more and they could demand more or they could hire people and they could compete with the local lord um, for that labor. And so it meant that people who weren't in the aristocracy had, you know, had their own kind of economic power and they were able to influence the market, you know, created more of a market as well. Because they were saying, well, I, I look, I just inherited these three bloody farms. And with these three bloody farms, I need to hire people. And I, I want, you know, the land, the Lord is given a certain certain deal and I need to give a better one to be able to get them. So all of a sudden, uh, the, the, the power of the free market started to get involved here to make people's lives better. A quote from I don't know who. But Brian, Brian Tierney, who's a uh, medieval historian in, in an article from the New Republic, we'll throw it up in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you. Said, quote, <clears throat> these laws implicitly acknowledged that the feudal bargain had vanished. They did not appeal to the personal bonds of loyalty and protection, but rather they appealed to simple, simple interpersonal checks on monetary exchanges. And thus the plague that had ended the lives of some 75 to 200 million people in Eurasia also helped put an end to the feudal arrangement itself, end quote. So clearly radical social and political changes that caused great upheaval in the years to come and ultimately led to the birth of the modern world, arguably. And I say arguably because I'm not a historian and I'm not familiar with the full array of arguments against it, but so be it. Well, and, and you know, uh, this is a drunk episode. I can do what I want. Exactly. The, I I part want. of part of the problem I ha- part of the problem I have with modern historians is the answer to everything is well, it's complicated, and there's many different causes that lead to all these things. It's like yeah, 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 I know, but like, what's the one that freaking matters? And you know, I think to and and you can argue over the one that matters, but I think saying well, it's complicated and there's a lot of stuff going on is kind of a it's not really doing your job because you don't need a PhD and, and 20 years of being tenured to be able to say that, right? It's complicated. Like I, yeah, I, I can say that. I don't have a PhD. And so anyway, you know, those of you with PhDs listening, like, girl, a pair, let's, let's, let's like actually teach me something, right? But otherwise, I, you know, from what, from what I understand, the change that the plague brought about 
was momentous. And indeed, other things got involved kind of around the same time, possibly because of it, right? So you had a shortage of labor. So there was there was a pressure to be able to do things with less labor, right? So people had to get, I don't know, innovative. There was a, you know, there was there was a pressure to be able to create the like monetary institutions to be able to, I don't know, God forbid, actually pay people in real money and keep track of that stuff as the bargaining power of labor improved. And, and so I, I, you know, I, I would, I would like to say that the, the, the black plague was highly influential in bringing about modern economies and, and modern societies. But it turns out that the Black Plague uh, was not the first time the Black Plague happened. It was the second. And by the second time, I mean the second series of times, because, of course, the Black Plague, uh, how many time, How many hundreds of years did it last? Well, it came back in three big cycles. There is a third plague that started in the mid-19th century and lasted into the early 20th century and still exists today. It's just it, it, it wasn't killing on the scale of millions of people um, right. today and when it did these three times in the past. Right. So there is the, the first time that this showed up and it, it took the world by storm was the plague of Justinian, which is the same essential bacterium uh, of the Black Plague, Yersinia pestis. Um, which causes all of the bubonic, you know, plague garbage that everyone has to deal with, and um, it hit uh, it hit the Eastern Roman Empire slash the Byzantine Empire at a really inconvenient time for a lot of reasons. One of them is that one of them is that at at the time it hit, Justinian was trying to retake the Western Empire. So Justinian had sent Belisarius and literally 150 percent of the money he had. And his entire bloody army over to Italy and saying, we're going to take this back from the stupid gods and uh, not Normans, Lombards, and, you know, and finally get bloody Rome back. It's we're Rome. We need Rome. We don't have Rome, but we're Rome. It doesn't make sense. So let's do it. And he sent that over. And then the Black Death hits. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. And by the way, he's at war with the Persians around the same time. And so he gets wrecked pretty bad. And uh, apparently it originated in Ethiopia, spread to Egypt, Gaza, Jerusalem, and then Antioch, and it spread around the Mediterranean on trade routes. So what would happen is, is ships, you know, ships would show up and people would be kind of sick and they'd let people out and then boom, it's in Byzantium. And sometimes ships would show up and nobody was alive on the ship and it was real spooky. So hardcore plague ships traveling around and it would bring Yersinia pestis around and, and a ton of people would die. Um, and then what would happen is that, you know, of course, everyone that survived would get immunity and it would go away. But because trade moved fairly slowly compared to modern trade, it would mean that it would like travel around the Mediterranean for 30 years. And then the next generation would show up and not have the immunity. And boom, it would get them by the time it would come back. It was real bad. So it probably killed 25 to 50 million people, which is like 25% of the population of Earth at the time. And then maybe even more died. Who knows? But, um, but what's what this this kind of continued spread around the Mediterranean over and over and and bouncing around lasted two hundred and twenty five bloody years. So, go ahead. Yeah, uh, at the time the world's population was something around two hundred million, and this is according to some estimates that were pulled together by the U.S. Census 
Bureau citing other academic sources. But their stats were really hard back then, clearly. But the estimates are somewhere between 25 million to 50 million people died. That's how you get the 25%. Uh, some other sources I pulled up said closer to 100 million, just gives you a sense for the massive, massive range of variation, since that would represent half of global population back then. And for folks not familiar with the Byzantine stuff, the Roman Empire fell, blah, blah, blah. It's the thing you usually hear about. That happened back in 470. And then it, it, it split into the Eastern Roman Empire, which kept on going. And then a bunch of quote-unquote barbarian like kingdoms in the West, including the Italian peninsula. But Justinian was the head of, of the Eastern Roman Empire, which remained at the time. They considered themselves Romans. And it had been not quite 100 years. And Justinian's like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retake Rome. And we're going to do this whole unified empire thing again. So it was a big deal. It, it's, it had been something that had not been attempted really seriously um, f- since Rome. And it wasn't really attempted seriously afterwards either. And he was kind of on, on the brink of being successful, right? Like he subdued a big part of the population. But after the plague hit, he wasn't able to sustain his gains, right? Yes. And then it gets even worse because... Then he's kind of crippled trying to hold on to Italy and was never really going to win long term against the Lombards. Um, The Persians got hit with the plague as well, but he's at war with the Persians and he got depopulated and depopulated and depopulated and ground down and lost a lot of government revenue and couldn't sustain as big an army. Um, And then, you know, and of course, five to ten thousand people were dying every day in Constantinople and Constantinople was like maybe a million people. So it's like five to 10,000 people dying every day in like Boston or Miami. We're not even talking New York here. We're talking like Indianapolis and but much denser. And so just piles and piles of bodies being burnt and they get they get they get whacked by this for a couple hundred years. And then, you know, in the 600s, after they got wrecked by their wars and plague, a bunch of really zealous, very excited Arabs come charging out of the Arabian Peninsula. Very excited. Uh, They're really very earnest. excited. Yeah. <laughs> very excited about this new guy named Muhammad or something. I don't know. And they said, hey, Muhammad is the way in the light. And uh, are you down? People are like, huh? And they're like, Bleh, right, and killed them. And took over the Levant and uh, totally destroyed the Persian Empire, which had lasted for a thousand years, right? Like, this is the same Persian Empire that we're talking about. Well, sorry, in a form, right? Like, uh, Alexander obviously took it out. Um, but then it, like, but then it was still Persian after that. It's just, it's just Alexander kicked his butt a couple times. So, in a lot of ways, the same Persian Empire that we're talking about going to war with the Greeks multiple times and you know you if you've seen 300 uh it's actually a very historically accurate movie <laughs> and um so you know exactly how that war went xerxes the second was 11 feet tall in real life exactly, exactly yes. um and bald and anyway same persian empire gets totally destroyed right the, the roman empire is at war with persia for its entire existence persian empire gets crushed by the plague pissed off arabs show up take it out they take out the eastern part of the Eastern Roman Empire, take Egypt, take the Levant, take Northern Africa, which is like the vast majority of where Rome's wealth comes from. Rome gets turned into a regional power. And then for the next 300 years, the Jihad or, or something is something like 300 years. Every single year, the Jihad goes and raids uh, essentially Turkey, which is where, you know, the only bloody farms in the Roman Empire left. And this is and and like this is possible that despite the tiny 
the tiny and and why am I spending so much time on this? Because in the Arab Peninsula, it was a tiny, tiny population compared to Persia or Byzantium originally, right? Because it's a freaking desert, not the Mediterranean. And uh, because of the wars and the plague hitting Persia and Byzantium for so long, the Arabs are able to come sweeping out, literally destroy Persia and take it over and turn it Muslim and destroy Eastern Byzantium and turn it Muslim. And like Islam became a global thing rather than a hiccup because of this freaking plague. And like, that's the kind of historical implication that's going on here. There are like thousands and thousands of religions that have ever happened. Why did Islam, you know, you can ask for each of these, like, why did they took foothold? One of the major reasons Islam became a thing was because of this Justinian plague. And had it not been for that, you know, people could be like, well, it's complicated, Eric. You can't just say one thing caused it. It's like, yeah, well, killing 50% of the Byzantine population probably had a bloody impact on its ability to not win a war against a brand new army out of the desert. So, uh, you know, kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. And since we're talking about the Persians, maybe maybe here we use the opportunity to jump backwards in time a little bit further, although I'll make well, more common about this first plague, the Justinian plague in 541 AD, which was, this lasted for about another 200 uh, some odd years, 225 to, until about 750 AD-ish when it kind of went away for a little while for the most part before coming back in the 1340s. And when it did come back in the 1340s, to your point, Eric, like it did last longer. That second incarnation of the plague lasted until the 17th century. And there was a really famous plague of London when Isaac Newton was forced to leave the city and be in quarantine for several months. And that's when he uh, came up with the, the fundamental ideas that would kind of lead to modern calculus. Uh, the, the, I think he came up with the idea of the infinitesimal while he was there, and like, which just has something to do with like limits and whatnot. Yeah. Key takeaway from this is, look, honestly, all of us are, are quarantined right now. And if you're not coming up with the next like the the next innovation in mathematics or science, what are you doing? Get off TikTok, get off Netflix. Let's go, man. Come on. Yeah. And clearly, right. A lot of folks are going through some form of collective trauma right now. So if you're not your most productive, like it is, you know, don't worry about it. it the, the reason I, I'm mentioning the case of Newton is, is just to say that we can find a silver lining in this, in this madness and we can you know, there, there is a way to be productive if you want to be productive and we'll get through this, et cetera, et cetera. But we're going to hop back to Athens, right? The, the plague of Athens happened in 430 something BC, right? Sounds about right. Yeah. And it happened, uh, during the war, not with Persia, but with no. Sparta. And the reason we're using Persia as the pivot is, is Persia the empire had lasted a thousand years and fell in the seventh century after the plague and after the war with the Byzantine Empire in 628, 630. They really got founded in like the sixth century BC by Cyrus the Great, who my dog is named after. Uh, it's kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal. And not much long after the Achaemenid Persian Empire was founded, uh, they went to war with Greece and Greece not being a single place, but many city states was able to bind together and fight them off. And as soon as uh, Greece was done binding together and fighting off the Persians, they all started fighting each other. Classic Greece. Classic Greece. 
And so the Peloponnesian War begins. And what had happened was Athens had sort of become the leader of the coalition against Persia for a couple of reasons. One, Sparta. Um, Ath- Sparta. No, 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 no. I mean, I mean, when it, oh, against Athens per- had become Sorry. Yeah, the leader of the coalition against mm-hmm. Persia for a couple of reasons. One of them is that uh, in the first Persian War, the Persians landed on the coast of, uh, oh gosh. Marathon? Yeah, they were at Marathon. I just forget what the region's oh. called. But anyway, they were at Marathon, and uh, basically they, a, a bunch of Athenians kind of rushed over there, which is not what the Marathon's named after. Calm down. Oh, wait, no. Marathon is before that. Oh, gosh. Now I forget. Anyway, first war. Salamis? Can you think about Salamis and Pericles? No, before oh, that. Sorry. All right, never mind. First version, long story short, is a bunch of Athenians rush down the hill as the Persians are landing and drive them off. And that the way the way that you identified that you were part of that battle was you said, we ran. And that's all you had to say. And then the second one, uh, 300, the movie describes this historically accurately. And uh, yeah, Battle of. uh, Oh, yeah, maybe that was Marathon. Well, whatever. Anyway. And so the the Persians the Persians are defeated uh, through a number of battles uh, where the Athenian or sorry where the the Greeks got quite lucky. But long story short, is the Athenians were in charge by then of the coalition, and they sort of took this opportunity to create a hegemony uh, where a bunch of folks reported to them and like paid them taxes and all sorts of stuff. And they didn't you know a lot of people didn't like that. And the Spartans said, hey, you know, if you don't like that, we can help you out. We can help you throw off the Athenian yoke. And a bunch of people said, yeah, that's cool. We're into that. And so they had a war. And uh, it, was a, it was a real dumb war, um, but a really dramatic one, as Thucydides uh, helps us understand. And the plague of Athens started two years in, when the Athenians were all bottled up by Spartan soldiers on their, like, in all up in their uh, Attica. That's the name of the region. Mm. Uh, Spartan soldiers all over Attica and burning crops and such. And Athenians and all these refugees were in Athens. And lo and behold, plague shows up, kills a bunch of people, perhaps 100,000, which is a lot uh, for, for Athens. Uh, or because uh, there were only like 10,000 citizens, I believe, at the time. A lot of people weren't citizens, obviously, but um, not a huge nation state or not a huge city state. And they get they get pretty hosed by uh, they get pretty hosed by this. And one of the reasons this is so important is that uh, it crippled their military because they were a very citizen army kind of military. And so their military was quite crippled. They had to rely on a lot of new troops that were younger. Um, they didn't perform nearly as well in battle. They weren't able to decisively defeat the Spartans when they had the opportunity. And so the war dragged out and the Athenians were eventually defeated after a bunch of other dumb decisions. And their defeat uh, and a, a very long war and their defeat meant that uh, some guy named Phil from someplace called Macedon was able to come <laughs> down and take over the whole place. And Phil had this son named Alex and Alex was pretty great. and. Alex, you know, Phil had united the united the Hellenes into one truly one state. Uh, Alex was pretty great, and Alex led a bunch of dudes all over Persia and kind of took over the whole thing for about twelve seconds before he died. And it was a you know, is therefore another very world changing kind of plague. Key takeaway: plagues 
plagues do more than just kill people. The big, big things can change afterward. I, I'm waiting for you to read this quote by Thucydides here in your best uh, impersonation of that guy who reads the book on Audible, whose name I forget. Ah, yes. Uh, okay. <clears throat> so the other, the other big thing that changed was Athenian society changed in a lot of ways. So Athenians were really, really superstitious and really into following the rules and social norms, and they're very conservative. And everyone knew exactly how to act, uh, at least kind of according to all the authors around there. And when the, and they also believed that like kind of everything was due to the gods, which, you know, a lot of people have thought forever, including now, but they had then, they believed because of the plague that the gods had abandoned them. And so Thucydides says, quote, the catastrophe was so overwhelming that men not knowing what would happen next to them became indifferent to every rule of religion or law. And thus spoke Thucydides. Yes. Exactly. Boom. Um, Boom. And so Athenian law or Athenian society changed dramatically. And why is this important? Ultimately, because it meant that people started questioning things and questioning things, you know, and you also had like the rule of the the tyranny after they lost to Sparta and uh, the tyranny plus questioning things may have been why Socrates uh, became a thing. And thus Plato became a thing and Aristotle became a thing and philosophy became a thing and the Western world became a thing. And maybe it would have happened at a certain point, but, you know, serendipity being all that, it happened then, maybe largely driven by this plague. Again, modern historians with their mealy-mouthed, there are many causes to everything, won't like this, but I'm going with it. (laughs) So, let's see, we've now hit, uh, oh, and uh, Athens, Athenian plague. Based on the, the scant research I've done, they don't really know what caused it. They, they think it might have been a couple right. of different viruses, including maybe one of the earlier break, out, outbreaks of influenza, I read. Is that right? Oh, maybe. Anyways, there's, they don't know. It's not pers- uh, Yersinia, Yersinia's pers- uh, pesties. Um, oh, boy. I, have I mentioned I'm on to my second, second beer? The first one was a, was a double size, though. It was that Taddy Porter from Sam Smith. Now I'm on to a Coconut Hiwa Porter from Maui Brewery. Brewing. Brewy. Wow. And you can tell that I'm enjoying it. So let's hop back in time or forward in time. We've now talked about a plague in the 5th century BC, in the 6th century AD, and then the 14th century AD, the second incarnation of uh, the plague, which lasts several hundred years. And let's go to the 19th century. And it's not a plague. It is something that's maybe a little less known to folks, which were a series of cholera um, epidemics that occurred all throughout Europe. And there there were several of them that lasted from relatively early on in the century. I don't have an exact date here, but kind of like after the Napoleonic Wars, but before the 1830s, that was kind of like the Uh, first-ish. The third cholera pandemic, which occurred in Russia in the 1850s, was the most severe. The first two, I think, killed about 100,000 people each. Uh, And so you can call it a pandemic. It was really serious. But it wasn't as as widespread as as the third. And I'll get into a little bit of why that is then. But to kind of understand what the social implications of these cholera pandemics were, you kind of have to know what the world was like in 1815 when Europe just ended the Napoleonic Wars. So the French Revolution happens in the late 18th century, the first famous French Revolution. There are, of course, two others, which we'll get to. 
uh, and it goes on, blah, 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 chaos, dictator Napoleon takes over Europe, exiled, comes back, tries to take over again, and is finally exiled permanently. And that happens in 1815 at Waterloo. And the entire continent had been completely obliterated by the French Revolution and French expansion throughout the continent. And since this new revolutionary fervor was not going away because ideas don't disappear, the leaders of all these countries were trying to figure out. <laughs> Sorry, you, you, God, you sound like someone who watched too much beef of Vendetta. <laughs> the guy Fox mess. Uh, you can't kill an idea. Uh, ideas they 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 last time something something so how do you rule europe now that this whole revolutionary idea fervor thing is out and make sure that france which clearly is susceptible to it because it happened there first you know does it doesn't happen again with france and they try to take over and you know, I say it was the, it happened the first time with France. I, I mean that in terms of like the the revolution, something, something, the modern revolution. France had tried to take over Europe before, like under Louis the Fourteenth. There are several wars of conquest that were sometimes mildly successful, but not always. And France had really been the powerhouse of Europe, the land power of Europe throughout the 17th century and into the 18th century. And even though Great Britain was able to establish its global empire on the seas. France really ruled the continent in a way that Britain usually couldn't challenge them outside of a coalition. And when Wellington won at Waterloo in 1815 against Napoleon, it was not Wellington alone. It was Wellington with the Prussians coming up on his flank led by uh, Blücher, who kind of saved the day. If the Prussians had not gotten there, Waterloo could have gone the other way, but they did. And so all of these monarchs are trying to figure out how do we rule Europe now with this new idea out and they came up with this this like system based on the idea of balance of power. And in the West, you had a coalition of four countries. Is great uh, at that point the UK and Prussia, Aust- Austria, and Russia. Yes, and they formed the Quadruple Alliance. And the idea was those four countries would go to war again to contain France if France got grabby. And in the East, there was a coalition called the Holy Alliance, and that was based upon the idea of autocratic legitimacy, basically, which is kind of like a wonky way of saying, I'm a king and I'm not going anywhere, guy. And Russia and Austria and Prussia all banded together, their ruling monarchs, and said, we're not going anywhere, guys, Uh, followed by... Yeah, the big idea was that they'd look out for each other if if any revolutions happened. So this was an alliance not against other nation states, but against anti-monarchical revolutionaries. Exactly. So that alliance was meant to prevent revolutions in their prospective countries where the alliance in the West was meant to contain France if they wanted to get grabby again. Um, So that's what was going on in 1815. And then you had these cholera outbreaks that occurred in the next couple of decades. And they weren't quite as deadly as the Black Plagues or even the third cholera uh, epidemic that would come later in, in the decade. But they did contribute to deteriorating living conditions in a number of cities. And when you have people living on each other, uh, on top of each other in really unsanitary conditions like these 19th century cities were, cholera. Yep, remember early industrial revolution. Yep, exactly. Throw your piss and shit out on the street from a pan, right? And so you get cholera. People were struggling and living conditions deteriorated and they started saying, well, wait a minute. The, the, we don't, we don't, we shouldn't have to live like this. 
it's not fair that we're not getting support and we're being forced into these situations and we're uh, suffering unduly from the outbreak because we have to live in these living conditions. And this is argued by some scholars to have contributed to, uh, at first, the revolution of, I think, 1830 that occurred in France, which was very short-lived and was really not a social revolution like the first revolution was. It was a political revolution, which kind of like swapped one monarch for the other. And I always forget the details for some reason. This one just doesn't stick in my mind. Do you remember any of this? Which revolution? 1830, France. Uh, uh, wait, was this the was this the Paris Commune? Um, I don't, yeah. no. I think Mike Duncan talks about this when he talks about the 1848 revolution. So he gets into the this is the flip. It, it went from one monarch to another. That was like oh yes, the Duke d'Orléans, yeah. d'Orléans versus the. Uh, uh, Bourbons. Bourbons and Orleanists. Reinstating, yeah, reinstating the Bourbon something something. Yeah, sorry. Paris Commune is 1870s. How embarrassing. We, we, we don't always promise all of the details, but if you're interested in the 1830 revolution, check out Mike Duncan's revolution yeah. series. If you ever needed a moment to remember to not let anyone do the thinking <laughs> for you, it's this episode. <laughs> right now I'm letting this Maui Brewing Coconut Hewa Porter do the thinking for me. Do the thinking for us. That's right. <laughs> By the way, as is tradition, I've got an 805 um, from Central Coast, California. What's interesting about the 805 is I don't know if that's the name of the brew or the brewery. It might be both. Who cares? They're all over the peninsula. 805. 805. Uh, you're good with that marketing stuff, Eric. You should consider a career in sales. I should. <laughs> Those who don't understand, I'm the sales founder, Mike. Right, exactly. So this is where we are in the 19th century, and uh, this this uh, the cholera epidemics contributed to the this first revolution. It was not the only thing, and another cholera uh, um, epidemic that went throughout. Yeah, it's the beer's <laughs> working. As historians would love to tell you, there's no one cause. It's many different things. Don't worry about it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, we are we're we're citing academia as an entire thing right now. Uh, footnote one: historians. <laughs> <laughs> More cholera outbreaks uh, were believed to have contributed to the 1848 revolutions, which were which were more expansive than the 1830 revolution, which was just a French thing. 1848, I, I think, started in France, but spread th- all throughout Europe. And- that it did. And that, that was kind of like the beginning of, you know, you contained the revolution the first time, but no, we the people really, this is a thing that's going to happen and you can't hold back the tide of history, right? And for those of you, well, actually, they totally managed to hold back the tide of history with the 1848 revolutions. Just want to be clear about that. They didn't do very well um, in the long term. They all got squished, but it was everything from like Italy to the Balkans to France to... And it was it was we want freedom, we want liberty, equality, fraternity, but we also want nationalism, which I know is a naughty word now. But at the time it was, oh, you know, Austro-Hungarian Empire, you, you think you can rule over us, but we're Serbs, so buzz off. And those of you who know Les Miserables, uh, it's from 1848. It, no, it's uh, not. It's not. It's not from what? 1848. I looked into this. What? No, it's it's an, it was an uprising in like the 1830s that happened after the 1830 revolution. Ugh. Sorry, I. It's a thing I've looked into. <laughs> God, 
All right. Anyway, barricades everywhere. Barricades through Europe. 1848. Uh, yes, cholera. 1848. That got crushed for the most part, as, as Eric said. It did have some surprising uh, results 70 years later in the Balkans, but you know we've done episodes on that. Look the one up on Serbian nationalism. We have a whole hour on it. When does it start? When does it start? You just, you just keep going like, oh, everything is due to the Cold War, which is due to World War II, which is due to World War I, which is due to Balkan uh, fractionalism, which is due to the 1848 revolution, which is due to... Uh, you know, the Ottoman Empire taking over, which is due to, you know, the the Seljuk Turks coming down from the from the steppes of Kazakhstan, which is due to the Byzantine Empire being weak, which is due to Yersinia Pestis. Yersinia Pestis. <laughs> you know, this is this is how these things happen. Yersinia Pestis is why the modern world exists. Because it's why the Byzantine Empire fell to the Ottomans, which is why the Balkans became fractured, or, or at least was beat up by, sorry, Yersinia Pestis is why the Byzantines got beat up, which is why the Balkans were fractured originally rather than Roman. And it's also why the uh, Seljuk Turks were able to take over the Byzantine Empire and create the Ottoman Empire uh, and also why the, oh gosh, I don't even remember who, but like Russian style Serbs uh, and Romanians were able to wander down and settle in that area rather than the Romans holding them off, stupid Yersinia Pestis. And so you have all these people that settle there and, and, and that causes, you know, if not for Yersinia Pestis, they wouldn't have settled there. It would have just stayed Roman. Uh, but because they settled there, you have... 1848, which led to World War One, which led to World War Two, which led to the Cold War, which led to, you know, 9-11, which led to, you know, U2 and the office coming from the United Kingdom to the United States and SpaceX. Everything is due to it's Yersinia crazy. Pestis. Gosh. And and we've just explained that's a history, a short history of the world by Eric Fogg right there for you guys. <laughs> You're welcome. The Balkans, man. It's all the Balkans. Balkans. What happened there? Uh, I, I forget where we were on the timeline, so I just got to hop right back in at that third cholera epidemic. Look, at some point, at some point, cholera has something to do with the 1848 revolution, Sander. How is it related? Was it just that people were cranky and having a hard time? What was going on? Just tell us. Uh, I, well, I have to admit, I didn't look into all of the details on 1848, um, just because... Uh, I ran out of time, frankly. I, I, I really, this is something I really want to know more about and how cholera influenced those revolutions. But I, I read different scholars citing that that was probably a thing. Useless. I know, right? I do nothing for you guys. Um, but I do know a little bit more about the third cholera pandemic in Russia. Thank God. Let's talk about something useful. <laughs> I, I can't help you on the second, but I can help you on the third. Does that make a difference? No. Mm. Good thing I'm drinking beer and don't care about what you think. Mm -mm -mm. <laughs> uh, quarantine people. So 1852 to 1860, the third cholera pandemic, it takes its toll most greatly in Russia. About a million people are killed. And this is during actually fairly tumultuous times uh, in Europe, although not tumultuous by you know World War I standards. But 
there was, let's see, when did the, it was 1853. Yeah, there was this war that happened. It was called the Crimean War. A lot of people don't know about it, but there's a really, really famous uh, poem, Charge of the Light Brigade. You, you know the one, right? Um, uh, you know what? Actually, since this is a drunk episode, I'm just going to do it. I this is one. Do this it. is one of those po- those poems that I've memorized because I like and I want to do it. I want to be able to just like fucking pull it out at at a thing at some point. But instead, okay, do it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Hold on, let me, let me, let me, let me get there. So, charge of the light brigade. Half a league, half a league, half a league on all in the valley of death. Rode the six hundred. Forward the light brigade, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade! Was there a man dismayed? Not though the soldier knew someone had blundered. Theirs not to reason why. Theirs not to make reply. Theirs but to do or die. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Cannon to left of them. Cannon to right of them. Cannon in front of them. Volleyed and thundered, stormed at with shot and shell. Boldly they rolled, they rode, and well into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell rode the six hundred. Flashed all their sabers bare, flashed as they turned in air, sabering the gunners there, charging an army while all the world wondered. Plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke. Cossack and Russian reeled from saber stroke, shattered and sundered. Then they rode back, but not, not the six hundred. Yeah, the poem keeps going, but I like ending there. So be it. Uh, Crimean War was not like a very well-conducted war, as that poem mentioned. And this charge of the Light Brigade happened during this battle of uh, Balaclava, which is a siege of Sevastopol. So, you know, people have been fighting about Crimea for a while. It's a thing. But it was a tumultuous time. Russia was trying to expand. Again, Balkans, something, something, World War I. And they got pushed back by a coalition of European powers. But the thing is, that war kind of shattered that system of alliances that existed in Europe post-Napoleon, which we talked about a little earlier in this episode. And all of a sudden, like Austria knew it could no longer trust Russia. And they were right next to each other, and they both wanted the Balkans. And all of a sudden, Prussia was like, oh, man, well, we had this thing, and now I need to try to be friends with both of you. It's like you're, you're exes, and I'm a friend with both of you. That's what Prussia was like for the latter half of the 19th century. It's like, ugh. Austrian, I like you both, Russia, but you just, you you can't stand each other. But right before this war started, this third cholera pandemic broke out and lasted until 1860, which was several years after it ended. And right the next year, actually, you had a fairly substantial change in Russian society, which is uh, this event called the Emancipation of the Serfs. And much as we talked about serfs existing all throughout the Middle Ages up until you get the modern era and the birth of nation state, so on and so forth. That arrangement in some incarnation lasted much longer in Russia than it did in Western Europe. And there's a lot of different reasons for that size, geography. It's just, it's hard to transport things. It's hard to interact with other places and other stuff that I'm, I'm not going to get into right now. But the point is, this event, emancipation of the serfs, occurs in 1861, in which the serfs are granted some more rights. And it was definitely one of those things where like landowners did it and they were grumpy about it. But they're actually mandated by the Tsar. 
Because the Tsar realized that the situation was getting to a point where if he didn't provide the serfs some freedom, he would face a risk of rebellion against the landlords. So the Tsar actually provides more political freedom to these serfs. And I say more, again, it's a relative thing. And the landlords kind of resist it to a great degree. And a lot of people are still ultimately enslaved for the latter half of the 19th century in Russia. But that reform process starts there. And the third cholera pandemic ends basically the year before that happens. So that is the context in which uh, Tsar Alexander II is deliberating about the political implications of providing more rights to serfs. I'm I'm now thinking somehow the charge the way you read the charge of the light brigade makes me think of Poe's The Raven. Um, it's just so staccato, and I'm now thinking of something like, um, you know, be that our sign of parting. Horse or fiend, I shriek, I shrieked upstarting, get thee back into the tempest of the night's Crimean shore. Oh, yeah. Leave no black plume as a token that lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my light brigade unbroken. Quit the blast above my door. Take thy bullet out from my heart and take thy blast from off my door. Quoth the Russians, nevermore. <laughs> Political birds. Not bad from off the top. That's of my quite head. good. I'm impressed. I nice round of applause. There uh, we go. Sophisticated. Sophi- reconsider. Sophisticated. Um, Do you want to skip San Francisco? Yeah, kind- Maybe not. Well, Maybe- so here's the thing. We we hop to the. Uh, cholera pandemics of the 19th century and then there's this third plague pandemic which is worth mentioning it it wasn't as destructive as some of the as the two other plague pandemics in the past and i think it's worth mentioning because while we have generally been citing examples of pandemics in this episode and fairly substantial social repercussions the third plague is interesting to me because and i i'm not a scholar of the third plague but it seems to have not had the same degree of social unrest occur, at least in India. And the third plague occurred, started in the mid-19th century in the 1850s. By the time it ended, sort of at the end of the century, so this went on for several decades, something like 12 million million people had died in India and China, and about 10 million of those were in India. Um, And that lasted on until the early 20th century. And when Eric said, "Eh, maybe we don't go into the San Francisco thing, the San Francisco plague outbreak of 1900-1904 started, that was a, a, an event within the third plague pandemic that began in China because there were a lot of Chinese immigrants to San Francisco. It was the China bacteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, Why are you calling it that? It's Eusinia pestis. Isn't it racist to call it the China bacteria? It's from China. It's the China plague. Yeah. It's from China. It's from China. So this third plague happened, um, and I'm I'm not talking about this stuff flippantly. It's just, it's, it's good to I don't know have conversations about this stuff and not be somber and sober all the time when well, you're going through yeah, it, right? I think, I think what's interesting about this is that this is Yersinia pestis again, right? Yersinia pestis, which broke the Byzantine Empire first which second broke the feudal system of Europe and, you know, killed a third of Europe. And the third time it shows up in India and China, it kills 12 million people. 
which, by the way, is an unimaginably large amount of people for anyone who was born after the Second World War, right? Just un incalculably large amount of people. Don't pretend you have any idea. Unless you live through the Second World War, don't pretend you have any concept of how many people that is, right? It's just our brains can't handle it. Mine can't. Our weak hearts can't handle it. And that's okay. It's, it's we live in a better time. But it's a shitload of people. And, and it also made it over to San Francisco, which one of the reasons this is important is that remember that China and India were very, very much developing economies then. They still kind of are now. In 1900, when it made it to San Francisco, you know, the United States was a, was a modern power in a lot of ways. It had more modern techniques, even just to record what was going on and also deal with it. And so the belief is that this San Francisco bubonic plague outbreak, which, God, can you imagine having the bubonic plague right now? Ah! So it originated in southern China. Of course, Chinese workers immigrated to San Francisco, possibly brought it with them. It's from China. China. And, and what had happened was that people didn't know how it was really transmitting. Chinatown, of course, got hit hard by it. Chinatown was quarantined by health officials at the time. So we're learning a little bit about how health officials exist at all and things that they do in order to try to control plagues for the first time in 1900 in San Francisco. And what's interesting about this is that at the time, San Francisco was like, well, we don't really want to like get people thinking that San Francisco is kind of a no-go zone for the next 20 years. So let's just not tell them about this if we can avoid it. And they kept it themselves for a while until they couldn't anymore. And th this happens all over, by the way. It's happened in, it's happened in China, Italy, the United States, Spain. It uh, probably happened in China again and even in the U.S. again for COVID. But back in these days, you know, these, these places are, are, are first reacting slowly and then kind of trying to cover up how bad it is. Which, by the way, interesting note, go read Camus' The Plague and... Just kind of see the timeline of how people react to stuff. And that's all I'll say about that. Um, but long story short is by 1903, three years later after it showed up, they finally start taking it very seriously because it breaks out of Chinatown. And Rupert Blue, a physician soldier, was put in charge of the campaign. Quote, Blue set about disinfecting the city, starting with Chinatown Earthen basements were concreted. Concrete ones were flooded with carbolic acid. Walls washed with lye. Streets asphalted. Cesspools filled and decrepit dwellings demolished. Infection discovered elsewhere in the city led Blue to ponder modes of transmission. Suspecting flea-infested rats, he initiated a ferocious eradication campaign. End quote. Eight years. After the plague arrived, San Francisco is declared plague-free, which is the you know, shortest and least awful version of Yersinia pestis. And it was, Yersinia pestis was then transferred to the wild squirrel population, and a handful of Americans everywhere contracted it. Contract um, it still, these, every year. Like something like 10 yeah. Americans get the plague every year. But it's treated the easily. The bubonic yeah. effing plague. Yeah. yeah. But, and if if you're hearing like, oh my God, it took eight years and you're sitting there and becoming disheartened, I actually think this is an opportunity for optimism because unlike in 1908, we now have a general 
uh, germ theory. We know how bacteria works. We have developed antibiotics. Yersinius pestis was just discovered the fir- for the first time in 1894, the actual bacteria. They knew what the plague was. The bacteria itself that caused it wasn't discovered. And one of the challenges for us is that, you know, bacteria, we're pretty good at nuking them with chemical warfare. Uh, I know it's a mixed metaphor, but viruses are a lot harder, aren't they, Xander? They, they are. And I, I, I'll be honest, I, I've learned why in biology class, but I don't remember. I, do you know? Uh, no, but I think they're like smaller and harder and, and stuff like that, but... Long story short, there's no anti, there's no like good general antiviral, right? In the way that there are antibiotics and yeah. And so that's why we have things like the flu, which kills hundreds of thousands of people globally every year. We have HIV, which killed millions and millions of people. And uh, yeah, and that's why we have the cold all the time. And it's why we have, you know, and, and some cold, some some so the cold is caused by many many different viruses including various strands of the coronavirus sars was a coronavirus mers was a coronavirus right there are many many different coronaviruses and we don't know how to truly deal with all of these different mutations of the coronavirus and one of the reasons I guess one of the reasons viruses are so badass and scary is that they mutate really quickly and they do a great job of really hijacking the cell to to propagate themselves and spread through your body faster and all sorts of good stuff. So let's let's hop to some more flu stuff then. And the last point I want to make about the third plague is at least in India, I I think it would be difficult to to argue that I had any immediate massive social implications because you had the independence of India 50, 50 years later in 1947, but that was after World War I and World War II. And probably also somehow due to the Justinian plague, if my universal theory of history holds true. The, the fog theory of uh, universal history. I like it. It has a good ring to it. Uh, but there's such a long lag time that maybe it contributed somewhat, but 10 million people died in India. The population of India was much, much lar- larger at the time. Uh, several hundred million, so it was a percentage of the total population. It, it didn't quite have the same impact as did uh, in Europe in the 14th century. And, you know, early 20th century is when Mahatma Gandhi was in South Africa practicing as, a, as an attorney. And it, it would be some time before that, that movement grew within India itself. And a big part of that was World War I. And Indian soldiers serving in World War One and then coming back and still being treated as second class citizens in their own country. And based on what I know, I would argue that the way Indians were treated after the two world wars had more of an impact on the push for independence than did the plague. Now, uh, and the reason I mention this is because if we're going to talk about the social implications of plague, we should talk about the events in which there weren't any immediate uh, massive changes in the political mm. system, right? We, we should consider these, these negative events as well. And the now going to influenza, the 1889 to 90 flu pandemic, uh, which was also at the time known as either the Asiatic flu or the Russian flu, links to all our show notes at reconsidermedia.com, killed like a million people around the world when the global population was, was much, much lower. And this was considered one of the last great 
pandemics or perhaps the last great pandemic of the 19th century. And if you think about sort of what happened between 1890 and 1917, there's a lot of lag time. And, you know, uh, the Japanese beat Russia in 1904, 1905 in that war. And uh, then Russia was completely shattered in World War I. And that's really what opened the door to the Bolshevik Revolution. There, there were a lot of social currents in Russia at the time. Uh, we already talked about the emancipation of the serfs in 1861 that were pushing for greater... Uh, yeah, you had communists at the time, right? The the idea of a communist of uh, mm. already existed in the 1890s, and those people existed, right? Uh, Trotsky was a young man in the 1890s, and he went on to to be one the one of the defining characters in Russian history, and so that's what was going on at the time. So it's not like there weren't there wasn't social turbulence in Russia at the time, but there was no immediate massive political change as a result of this flu pandemic that occurred in 1889 to 1890 that spread around the world. Yeah, and to speculate a little bit, I mean, outside of, I I guess what we have to think about, I was going to say, they're just so used to people dying, which is kind of BS. But, you know, we have to think about what, what is the story that people have around a plague like this? So, for example, if we think of the the pre-Renaissance times, people go, oh, there's a plague. The gods are upset with us. They're really ticked off right now. And so we react in a certain way. And this is the case for Byzantium. This is the case for Athens. I'm sure it's the case for Egypt during, I mean, God, during the plagues of Moses, which probably happened and had very little to do with Moses having a, a you know, bat phone to God. And <laughs> I've never heard that before. Hey God, can you, can I like it? Can you send, can you send the frogs? I mean, come on. Oh, we didn't talk about um, the Egyptian plagues. Ah, we'll go back. To it. We didn't happy Passover everyone. Yeah. We'll get back to it. But you know, but then later, the plagues, you know, it depends what the story is around them. Like, do the play are the plagues this thing where where people go, oh God, we're all living on top of each other, and it's because of capitalism or because of you know of of the aristocratical system, or or hey, look, there's way you know, and it, it, when there are fifty percent fewer of you, it's it's one kind of change that's different from hey, just it feels like a lot of us died. Um, like a million of us, and it's because we're too tightly packed together, or something like that. And so it, it feels like there's a sense that the the story around what's possible and what is now gets gets emphasized a little bit more. And I suspect, you know, not I know absolutely nothing of India in the 1800s, much less any other time. But I wonder to what extent, you know, there was there was political thought around, oh, society can be fundamentally better in some way. Guess what? This flu is the fault of, of political structures that are, are keeping us like this. So some more flus. Um, I, I didn't dig too, too far into the Spanish flu just because so many uh, different sources are referencing it right now. And part, again, part of the sort of the, the motivation for this particular episode was everyone citing the Spanish flu in relation to COVID-19 and everyone citing the Black Death. And we want to, kind of wanted to say, what else has happened out there? What else has occurred in history? So I'm, I'm going to give like 30 seconds on the Spanish flu because everyone's writing about it right now. Um, 
It, I'm tracking you now. Oh, gosh. It occurred during World War I in the last year of the war. It was very virulent, and it affected younger people much more than the flu generally does and much more than COVID-19 does. Part of the reason people think it was, it was virulent is because it spread from different soldiers in the trenches, uh, and so it didn't need to become less virulent. It could kill its host. And then when the war ended in November of 1918, it spread all around the world and killed upwards of 80 to 100 million people all around the world. Uh, very deadly disease killed far more people than World War I did. There's a lot out there. Go yeah. read about it. Pause for a second. 80 to 100 million at a time when there were fewer than 2 billion people on the path. Holy crap. So I think it was in this Fed article I read, but if not, it's in one of the other articles in the show notes. Some, some researchers are saying that this COVID-19 may turn out to be the deadliest pandemic uh, since the Spanish flu. So what other pandemics have happened since the Spanish flu? And I don't think we're going to get into too much detail into each of these, but here's some perspective, and we do context here. Yeah. 1957, Asian flu pandemic started in China. China. Uh, China. And one to two million people worldwide, perhaps two to four million. About 100,000 people in the United States died. Again, 1957, originally in Guizhou. Uh, which if you know China, great. If you don't, too bad. And what's interesting is it circulated for about 11 years, at which point it underwent a genetic... So, so these deaths happened, like this wasn't one of these all at once, you know, people, pyres of people burning the way, you know, if, if we think about the, the Athenian, the Athenian plague was so acute that when people had people that died in their houses, right? Because there weren't there weren't hospitals. Nope. Or or and and even where there were, right? They're like war hospitals. It's like, okay, you've got a cut. We're gonna try to fix this cut. But it's like, oh, you're sick. What do you do? Well, you hope the gods can get less mad at you somehow. So you bring a priest, and and so people would just die, and people would carry the, the dead out of their houses, and. There was so many people dead that there'd be like a pyre burning one person and other people would just throw that body on the pyre. God. And that level of acuteness, right, was very prescient during the plague of Justinian, very prescient during the second bubonic plague in Europe, probably the third, but not so not so much, at least in the Western world, with the 1957 Asian flu, which is why you've never heard of it. It's just a higher death rate, right? It's like, oh, the flu killed more people for quite a while. And, you know, it goes through these spikes kind of left and right. Um, but they're not that level of acuteness of one place being cut in half the way that we've thought of some previous pandemics in part because of modern medicine hooray for modern medicine right holy simoleons what is this because i always wondered that but you know and these we're now talking about viruses which are much harder to combat right so these bacterial plagues like eusinia pestis again people still get it people get the black death but they don't die so it's the black annoyance right (laughs) (laughs) and um, and they're fine, but viruses are much harder. And and the fact that they haven't become these fifty to you know I don't know two point five fifty million to two point five billion people dead 
kind of pandemics is because of modern medicine and modern techniques to try to deal with them. So anyway, 1957 Asian flu killed 2 million plus people. And you haven't heard of it because, you know, it was the, the, the acuteness was somewhat suppressed due to good modern medicine. Congratulations. But then it mutated and became the 1968 flu pandemic, also known as the Hong Kong flu. This was uh, just about as virulent. It killed about uh, 1 million people worldwide, 100,000 in the U.S. And we're at, how many deaths are, are we at in the U.S. for COVID-19 right now? It's, we just surpassed Italy. It's about, uh, it's about 20-something thousand, right? 20-something yeah. thousand, yeah. Um, so this flu pandemic of 1968 killed 100,000 in the U.S., 1 million worldwide. The 1957 one killed between 70 and 116,000 people in the U.S. Between uh, either 1 to 2 or 2 to 4 million worldwide, depending on your sources. CDC has a lot of great information on this. And the case fatality rate in 1957 was about 0.3%. The statistic I found was for the UK, so I, I don't know if that's global. But the global fatality rate of the 1968 flu was about 0.5%. And, and remember with the coronavirus, we're talking about something on the order of 3%. So we're so talking about something that's on order of 10 times as deadly, which is why, you know, people talk about, you know, we're, we're talking about, hey, 100,000 deaths in the US in 1968. Why wasn't there a total quarantine? It's because one, there's a bit of a lack of, you know, a, modern medical methods are getting even better. But the coronavirus is 10 times deadlier. It's 10 freaking times deadlier. So we'd be talking about, you know, uh, and it's probably more virulent and stuff like that. So we, we could be talking about, you know, if the coronavirus had hit in 1968 and we didn't have the kind of technologies and methods that we have now, we could be talking about millions and millions of people dead at that time. I want to caveat that a little bit, Eric, just because information is so fluid, which we've already said on this episode. Uh, there, right. there, there are drastically varying estimates for this this figure R naught, which is the idea that how many people you infect if you have a certain disease. So if the R naught is three and you have it, you infect three people. And at first, the World Health Organization estimated that the R naught for COVID nineteen was something like two point four. And a lot of research is outside of the WHO is indicating that it's much higher than that, between maybe like three and five. Uh, oh, wow. Christopher Balding, who we had on the show several episodes ago, is writing a lot about this. He's not an epidemiologist. He's an economist, but he's collecting the data into one location that's easier for you to, to access because a lot of uh, media sources, unfortunately, aren't doing that right now. And it's good to have this information. And the reason that R not figure matters is that if it's much higher than we anticipated even a couple of months ago, then the chances are that far, 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 far more people have it than we think they do right now, which means that the case fatality rate might actually be much lower uh, relative ah. to the total infections. And we just don't have that data right now. And the point that Chris Balding makes is if the r not is so high and if the ca case fatality rate is actually much, much lower, then these massive global economic shutdowns may not be the best policy. There may be other policies that are better for directing resources towards fixing a slightly different type of problem. It's worth reading about uh, we don't know the CFR is 3% right now. Cool. But the CFR of the 1968 flu was 0.5%. We do know that because that 
has already concluded, and they're able to check those numbers a little bit more conclusively. Uh, the rough history of that is it kind of like spread around Southeast Asia and Vietnam and Singapore in, in sort of the summer of 1968. And of course, 1968, the year of the uh, Tet Offensive, a lot of uh, American soldiers in Vietnam began bringing it back at the end of 1968, and it spread through the U.S. What's next, Eric? Well, the big one, which, you know, those those of us who were not born in like the 60s don't really know the kind of apocalyptic. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Feeling or zeitgeist that surrounded this, but, but this is HIV. And... One of the tough things about HIV is that it was so deadly. It was, it was a death sentence to get it. Um, I, I, I don't know what the death rate was, but it was massive. So if you had it, you were toast. And, and one of the things that the world, the world can kind of thank of serendipity Looking back, is that it's a sexually transmitted disease rather than like coronavirus, a disease that gets transmitted through coughing or sneezing or, or touching your face. Because if HIV was spread through saliva um, or through mucus, you know, through mucus membranes like that, if it could survive being on surfaces rather than having to be kind of mucous membrane to mucous membrane contact or, or, or even kind of more intense, like we'd be dead. We'd just be gone. They've been like, okay, we're done. And, um, you know, or not, or not actually the end of human civilization, but real bad. And, and so HIV is one of those things that has a very, very high fatality rate, um, but very, very low are not. Right. Very low, um, you know, very low propensity to spread, especially if you know that you have it. Right? If you know that you have it, you know how to not spread it, and you can go about your daily life and not spread it. The world dodged a hell of a bullet with HIV, and it was also, of course, devastating to you know the LGBT community of of the Western world, um, and also to the and and that was like this. This was also this weird stroke of luck—not good luck or bad luck, just luck. That it was the LGBT community in the United States that that had it, and not the straight community in the United States that had it. Of course, HIV was ha, has been devastating to Africa, um, Sub-Saharan Africa in particular, and and George W. Bush 
initiated PEPFAR to, to sort of like land the final blow against HIV being a mass pandemic since 1980. So the, the reason HIV, if we think of all the social, sociopolitical, economic consequences of these different pandemics, HIV was briefly horrifying, um, like thought of as the end times. And then people realized it, you know, people were like, oh, gosh, it's only it's in the United States. So like it's, it's largely affecting the gay community. Um, but people thought that it could it could spread through handshakes for a while. They thought it could spread through, through contact. And so someone had HIV. They were they were ostracized. And because there's a lot of fear, um, it probably heavily influenced how the United States thought about the LGBT community for a long time. Obviously, you can you can imagine a lot of the more kind of superstitious versions of uh, American Christianity, especially Protestant Christianity, seeing this as a form of divine punishment for the LGBT community. Um, so there's a lot of like really fascinating soci- social consequences from it because it wasn't a very large number of people that died um, over a very short period of time, especially in the Western and developed worlds. Um, the economic and political consequences weren't huge, but um, it probably at, in, in some ways also accelerated conversations that Western society was having around LGBT communities and how we should be treating them and, and, and thinking about them as part of our part of the rest of the community um, and et cetera. And um, there was one place, I guess that, that uh, and Xander, you did the research on this where HIV got intense enough that it potentially became a, a matter of social unrest. Yeah. And since that's sort of the, one of the repeating themes of this episode, at least it's worth mentioning in, in Haiti in the 1980s, one of its main industries was tourism. And that accounted for a fairly large percentage of the po- of the uh, of the economy, and it had already begun to decline somewhat in the early '80s uh, due to a recession that was occurring in the U.S. But HIV did also begin to spread in Haiti, and that's believed to have caused a further decline in tourism to the country. And as the tourism industry suffered. People did more poorly and ended up rising up against uh, the di- dictator uh, Duvalier, who ended up leaving Haiti in 1986. So again, there's rarely one cause, but uh, that did seem to contribute to a substantial social unrest in Haiti in the 1980s. We've talked about a lot of different types of pandemics, and we're going to hop back to that teaser that I presented you with at the beginning of the episode now and tie it back into... Uh, economics and modern monetary policy. I just want to mention one quick, uh, quick, quick uh, thing before we do that. Quick. <laughs> oh, God, I, beer number three. Uh, there was, of course, several pandemics of smallpox that occurred throughout history that are worth being aware of. Uh, I didn't cover them too in depth here, in part because they they occurred over such a long period of time. They didn't have these contained short spurts where they broke out really virulently. I mean, they did, but they, it never went away, uh, except perhaps the smallpox outbreak in the Americas in the early, early 16th century when the Europeans came, which killed 
more than half of the population by many estimates of the Americas and again led to the modern world, but it was extremely virulent. No one in the Americas had any antibodies. But it's difficult to talk about that in too much depth because there also is just not a lot of data about it. There's not a lot written from that time period in the Americas. Wasn't it also maybe 90% or something? I've heard reliable figures quoting that. They are reliable sources quoting that figure. So how do we get back to modern monetary theory? Something very relevant to many people today from all these historical plagues. What tied it all together for me was this article... Re- a recent paper published uh, by researchers researchers at the San Francisco uh, Federal Reserve and the UC Davis Department of Economics. It was only published last month in March, and it was about the economic effects of historical pandemics. Really interesting set of data here. They used data that spanned from 1317 through to the modern day for several different European countries. And if you want to know about how they accounted for all the different sources of data uh, and standardized, normalized it, et cetera, et cetera, you can go read the paper. They talk about this. But essentially what they found was uh, they wanted to look at a period following the end of pandemics. And they cite, I think, 18 different pandemics in their sample set that they use. And for this 40-year time period after pandemics, what they found was a decline in the real interest rate and an increase in real wages. And that's very wonky, and I'll get into why that's actually uh, sort of an interesting finding. And often if you read research papers, you know, academics will cite, oh, blah, 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 this means more research is needed, it's an inconclusive, so on and so forth, Yeah, as we've been talking about with historians in this the episode, con- right? The conclusion of this paper is that someone else should do some research <laughs> about something at some point. <laughs> It seems worthy to do some Uh, research at some point about this. Good luck. What was striking to me about this paper is that the academics who wrote it were not using that language. They're using language like, these are significant findings. Uh, The finding is substantial and striking and surprising. And that's because they looked at all of these pandemics, and even if they excluded some of the most severe cases, like the Black Death, or the Spanish flu, because uh, some people argue that the Great Depression came 10 years later and that might have depressed real interest rates, um, so it was not a great uh, comparable. They excluded these from the data and still came up with the same results in those subsequent examples when they excluded it. So there's a fair amount of robustness in the findings, and the findings show that there's a statistically significant impact on real interest rates. And what that means is that in years following a pandemic, the return on assets, so certain types of investments, generally decrease. And one of the, th- the, the reasons that the authors posit that this may be the case is, well, a lot of destruction has occurred during a pandemic, so perhaps, you know, uh, the, the, the need to... That, that destruction has, has created a decline in the labor force, and um, it's harder to make a return because people are saving more, they're not spending as much. And they say okay, how can we test this? Well, how about we think about another type of historical event that's very destructive, like wars? And they, surprisingly, they were expecting wars to be a confounding factor in their findings, which means that they expected during wars to see a similar effect and uh, as, as they did with pandemics, because they were both destructive and they'd have to somehow account for that as a confounding effect. But that's not what they found. Instead, what they found was that wars resulted in an increasing real interest rate over time. And boom, which is the complete opposite, which means that pandemics have a somewhat unique effect on this one aspect of the the economy. 
And part of the reason that that they believe this might have been the case is that wars create the destruction of real assets in a way that pandemics don't. Wars create deaths of people as well, but a lot of rebuilding needs to be done after a war that doesn't need to be done after a pandemic. And this yeah. So if you think if you think about it, like with a pandemic, we've lost the population, but not all the stuff, not all the farms and the factories and the stuff that they can work on. So you have fewer people. You have the same like physical assets that could be making things, but fewer people to work them. Whereas with the war, you've lost people and you've lost lost all the factories and the farms and all the stuff. It's all gone. So you just have to build from scratch. So you're looking at a very different environment. It's Fascinating. And th- this is where I wanted to hop out real quickly to talk about the Germany Weimar Republic period, which we mentioned earlier in the show. Right, 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 right. right. Because after World War One, Germany, I mean, it had gone into total war phase in a way it never had before. All of its society was devoted towards waging this war, and a lot of its infrastructure was depleted, not quite destroyed like it was in World War II, because a lot of the fighting in World War I occurred on French soil and not German soil, but still there was a lot of destruction that occurred, and they had... Well, and a lot of these factories had been pivoted towards creating shells and and tanks, well, not tanks, but rifles and ammunition and stuff like that, so you, even if it wasn't destroyed, you needed a total retooling of these factories to be able to create domestic or civilian goods again. So a lot of work needed to be done in German society to rebuild the industrial capacity that they had had before the war, which was first among peers in the world. But all of the all the allied powers in World War 1 imposed these really severe war reparations on Germany, which is like a very 19th century thing to do, like you lost, you pay for the war. Um it's all your fault. And Germany didn't have enough production productivity going in the country to both rebuild its country and fund the war reparations so they took on a lot of debt and ultimately they didn't repay the debt back they printed their way out of the debt they devalued their currency by printing a lot of new currency um and basically shirked a lot of their their debt from the war reparations and this dissatisfaction towards needing to experience this period of hyperinflation because of these penalties imposed upon them by the, the victorious allies in World War I was a big cause of contention in the formation of the Nazi party in the lead up to World War II. So that's why I like to be careful with the Weimar Republic because everyone's always like, print money, hyperinflation, Weimar Republic. But it's like, maybe that's not the lesson to learn here. Maybe the lesson to learn here is if you're victorious in a war, don't impose unbearable sanctions on the losing party because it could have bad unintended consequences, right? Like Hitler's. Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> well, I, I mean, can you imagine if, like, one of the things that people don't understand, I, I keep hearing people talk about, well, you need to shift the Overton window. And they use this fancy term, like, the Overton window. Like, they're really smart and they have any idea what they're talking about. But they have, ab- you know, you look back at 1930s Germany and you're like, well, look, it was communist versus fascists at the time. Like it was the most far left you could be and the most far right you could be. And they were the two big parties. And the, the you know, spineless centrist was sitting there going, hey, we exist, too. I mean, do you want to maybe want to vote for us? You know, they were called Zentrum at the time and nobody gave a damn. And, you know, and I, I anyway. Can you, I'm just imagining, like, what if the communists had won in Germany rather than the fascists? And that would have been fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so 
I'll pivot back from Weimar Republic to this paper from the San Francisco Fed now. They found that real interest rates decline for nearly a 40-year period after pandemics, even excluding for the most severe pandemics like the Black Death and the Spanish flu. What does that mean if pandemics are... you? I don't know. I know, right? It's really exciting. Well, with wars, when they tested wars, the interest rate increased. And what that means is that the demand for capital increased following wars because there is a need to rebuild. That's why I brought the Weimar Republic back up. They had to rebuild the infrastructure so capital was in demand because they needed to fund projects. But following pandemics, they needed they didn't need to rebuild that capacity. That capacity hadn't gone anywhere, but the labor had. And people had become even more risk averse after going through massive social trauma. Savings increased, investment decreased, the demand for capital decreased. And since interest rates are the price of demand for debt, they also de- decreased because fewer people needed capital to, to make to productive projects. The return on land also decreased. This is part of like the real interest rate, the return on assets. And contrastingly, at the same time, the same paper found that real wages, so what people make adjusted for inflation over time, increased substantially over the 40-year period following pandemics. So much as we discussed at the beginning of the show, labor does seem to do better after pandemics for those who survive. And that doesn't mean that they don't carry severe emotional stress or trauma with them being the survivors, but in terms of pure economic profit, they have more negotiating power. But I think the real interest rate thing is the more interesting finding, and they do kind of highlight that as the main finding in their report, because what it, what it indicates is, so if real interest rates are low, it means that there isn't a whole lot of demand for capital which means that capital is cheap and you can borrow cheaply and use that for all sorts of different things. But um, what what these authors find is that uh, if low interest rates are sustained for decades, then perhaps they can provide fiscal space for governments to mitigate the consequences of the pandemic. And the idea there is if capital is cheap, then perhaps they can, they being governments, can borrow a lot more money without the unanticipated consequences of hyperinflation because there's depressed demand in the economy. And so we tie it back to the MMT from the beginning of the episode here. What this paper finds and really is striking, and I really recommend uh, going on to, uh, you can either find the link from reconcernedmedia.com slash podcast, find the show notes, or just search for the paper. But it was recent, and it finds that if you're looking at that shade of gray in between how much money can you print uh, because there is a threshold, then perhaps this, uh, these findings indicate that there is some degree of flexibility right now that if we're suffering a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic, real interest rates are more likely to be much lower for the next four decades, which is a statistically significant finding, which means that governments may in fact be able to spend more right now for cheaper without generating the unanticipated consequences of hyperinflation that have often come in the past. Um, clearly, historic uh, historian thing, something, something more research needed. But that's an extremely interesting finding <laughs> to me. And something about the way this paper was written really excited me, as you can tell, because it was, it was an academic finding with academics getting excited in ways that you often don't see. But if we need to... F- yeah, I've, I've never seen an academic get excited. Honestly. Yeah, it's not a thing, right? No. But if if I come back to my my 
point at the beginning of the show where I, I was struggling to understand what's radical about MMT, about modern monetary policy. Um, and it seems like a lot of it is the same discussion of, of the limitations and the shades of gray and how much printing to do. Then maybe looking at these examples of the past can give us some indication of how much flexibility we have right now to create more money without the negative consequences. Boom. Mic trap. Although before we do, what's interesting is there's, there's even like kind of current current policy tinkering on this concept, right? Like the Bank of England is financing the spending of the United Kingdom government. Is that right? Oh, yeah. This is super interesting. And frankly, we could do a whole other update show on this. And it's tough because there's so much news every day. And I'm sure we Right. Will. But the Bank of England is starting to do something that to my uneducated eyes seems kind of like what the MMT uh, advocates suggest, which is more... Dr- and new... And it's new. Yeah, exactly. They're more directly funding the government through some technicality in the law they're claiming that's like out of date, but they're using it anyways, because that's what politicians do. It's what lawyers do. It's a thing, right? Um, Got them. Got them. Yeah. Next time, next time you read that EULA and go, eh, it doesn't really matter what it says. Trust me, someone's going to read that word and say, well, the definition of is, is this, and we're rolling with it. And now we're printing money and the government's spending Ah. it. Ugh. That was, I, I've enjoyed this conversation, Eric, and I think at it, it, almost two and a half hours, we should let our readers go enjoy whatever Netflix show they're binging right now. Well, the, the, the listeners don't get two and a half hours because you and I kept taking breaks to have to like, take a leak because we've been drinking so much. Sometimes you just need another beer, you know, yeah. when, when you're talking about plague. Alcohol and plague go together like... I don't know. I'm not quick enough. Wait, doesn't alcohol kill plague? Actually, uh, on our way out, fun fact. Tito's vodka, <laughs> made in Texas, my favorite <laughs> vodka, had to release a public service announcement that Tito's vodka is not uh does does not act as a disinfectant and does not you cannot use Tito's vodka in a spray bottle to kill the coronavirus. <sighs> but is it good vodka? It is good vodka. And the reason you can't use Tito's vodka to kill the coronavirus is because it's all caused by 5G towers anyway, I'm sure. Uh, we just had a two and a half hour conversation about uh, the social and political impacts of plague. And the one quote that's going to come from this episode is, the reason you can't use Tito's vodka to kill COVID-19. <laughs> that's the only thing people are going to remember. It's because <laughs> it, the COVID-19 is caused by 5G mm-hmm, towers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. There we go. So, folks, we hope you're you're staying safe. You're doing all right out there. We are, uh, and I've I've said this to my friends and my family. We're really living through history right now. Yeah, I dog. think this is. It's not unprecedented, but it's it's a it's a really serious, notable historical event that will leave an impact. We don't exactly know what it is, and in a way. Eric, you and I often talk about stoicism on the show, and I've really been taking heart some of the lessons that we've talked about. And listeners, we have episodes on stoicism. Go back and look at the toolbox toxes. Uh, toolbox. <laughs> Drunk. <laughs> toolbox talks uh, on stoicism, and you'll see what we mean here. But for me, the central stoic idea of needing to understand what's in your control and what's not in your, in your control has been actually extremely calming for me during this period. 
because I know that there are things that I can do to watch out for the people that I care about that are important and and geographically co-located near me, physically near me, that I can actually do something about. Uh, and there's a lot that I don't have control over in this situation. And getting stressed about the stress, it's okay to stress, but getting stressed about the stress from something that you have no control over, I think is additional pressure that we don't necessarily need to face. And there is, yeah. there's value and lessons to be learned from the Stoics right now that I think are really prescient and applicable. And I think another way of looking at it is that, look, it is, it is an evolutionary uh, survival trait to want to absorb as much information as possible, right? Because in our evolutionary history, all information was local and relevant. Right? You can only get information about what was going on now. And now we can get information about what's going on in places that, you know, just like, I'm not near New York anymore. So what's going on in New York? Day to day, it just super does not matter. I can't do anything about it. I can't help anyone. It doesn't help me. And so does it matter for me to know it? And the answer is actually no. I, to- I mean, sorry, for me to know the day to day, like what's going on day to day in New York. Like the general trend of me being able to think about how should I vote and how should I, you know, how should I prepare and all that stuff. Great. But, but there is so much news and information we can consume and there are personal stories we can consume and there are people's, you know, Instagram videos we can consume and we can consume all this stuff about COVID-19. It doesn't help us make a decision. It doesn't help us. Uh, inform action that we take and it's a great way of adding to our stress and anxiety without actually helping us be better friends and family members and citizens so i guess with that we'll we'll wrap up the show i i want to give a shout out to to folks who are really um and excuse me for using the sort of the common lingo here but on the front lines of this crisis folks who are working at supermarkets, folks who are working at hospitals, folks who are delivering things to people in quarantine. Mm-hmm. Right now, uh, we usually don't tell you what, what we think, and we certainly don't tell you what to think, but I think um, some of these folks are undervalued. Um, and I'm grateful uh, to everyone who perhaps they don't have the choice and they need to keep working, but they're keeping the country running right now. and. I don't know, man. I'm grateful. In a way, yeah. In a, in a way, it's a little like, you know, the United States had a draft during the Second World War. And just because, you know, and, and I think this, this could get more political than I mean, but, you know, I think in some ways people are economically drafted into these roles. Like that's what's available. You need to do it and you need a paycheck. And, and then all of a sudden the world calls on you, even though you're drafted into this, even, you know, didn't choose to go into it to stand on these front lines and, and risk your life and, and do the things that are needful for society to continue to function for like, you know, doofuses like Eric and Xander to be able to create a podcast and everything that exists around that to enable all these things, including our ability to podcast, to keep going and, and at the very least, we're just very grateful for all that work that everyone's doing, that, the, that those folks are doing, not everyone, but the, those folks are doing. 
So with that, friends, dear listeners, I think I'll uh, say goodbye to you all until the next episode. And we've been keeping these up at a pretty good pace. Maybe they'll keep going at this yeah. pace. But yeah. uh, don't let the pundits, including us, do the thinking for you, especially mm-hmm. after three beers. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off. This is Eric signing off. Go, uh, go stay safe. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.